0: a 47 podcast that's 47 selections from the works of alexandra kolontai my name is kristen godsey and i am a professor of russian and east european studies at the university of pennsylvania and the author of why women have better sex under socialism which i am very happy to announce has just come out in dutch from epo publishers in belgium and has come out in spanish from Capitan Swing in Spain. So that's kind of exciting. But today I am hopefully going to finish reading the autobiography of a sexually emancipated communist woman. This will be part seven and hopefully I will get through the text this time to the end. And when We last heard from Kollontai the revolution in Russia had happened. She was commissar of social welfare, trying to do a million different things and working towards women's liberation. As you know, she also got caught up in the workers' opposition and sort of fell afoul of her party comrades, Lenin and Trotsky. And there's actually a really kind of interesting backstory to that whole affair. That has to do with the fact that Alexandra Kolontai joined forces with Shlapnikov, who was a previous lover of hers. And actually, you know, Lenin and Trotsky both kind of questioned her motives, although she was very much politically opposed to war communism and the centralization. She really wanted workers' rights and the power to really remain in the Soviets. But it is interesting to think about the ways in which when a woman is in power and she does something that her male comrades don't like, they immediately attack her, attack her on sexual terms, which is what they did to Kolontai. She was receiving tons and tons of death threats during those early years of the revolution, as she talked about in the last episode. She was excoriated by the church and by the press, the bourgeois press, and eventually, as I, as I said, she, she fell afoul of her own comrades for being too radical both in her demands for all power to be, you know, given to the workers, but also for her very radical views on women and sexuality and the family. We are going to pick up at the beginning of the Civil War. And for those of you who aren't completely up to date on your Soviet history, it's probably worth just recapping here that in February of 1917, there was the first Russian Revolution, which installed Kerensky and the provisional government uh, and led to the abdication of the Tsar. Then the Bolsheviks come to power in October 1917 because they are basically promising to get Russia out of World War One. Then Russia capitulates to the Germans, and eventually there is a civil war in Russia that breaks out, and Lenin and Trotsky are basically having to fight the domestic whites, the you know, the old bourgeoisie and the military officers who are opposed to the workers' state as well as their foreign allies, namely the Germans and other countries who are opposed to the Bolsheviks. So this is 1919. This is the very beginning of the Civil War and Alexandra Kolontai is going to kind of run roughshod over the couple of years of her life that were really filled with lots of activities. The civil war in 1917 saddled me with new tasks. When the white troops tried to march north from South Russia, I was again sent to the Ukraine and to the Crimea, where at first I served as chairwoman of the enlightenment department in the army. Later up to the evacuation of the Soviet government, I was appointed people's commissar of enlightenment and propaganda in the Ukrainian government. I managed to send 400 women communists out of the threatened zone near Kiev with a special train. I did my most possible best for the communist women workers movement also in the Ukraine. A serious illness tore me away from the exciting work for months. Hardly having recovered at the time I was in Moscow, I took over the direction of the coordinating office for work among women. And again, a new period of intensive, grueling work began. A communist woman's newspaper was founded. Conferences and congresses of women workers were convoked. The foundation was laid for work with the women of the East. Two world conferences of communist women took place in Moscow. The law liberalizing abortion was put through and a number of regulations of benefit to women were introduced by our coordinating office and legally confirmed. At this time, I had to do more writing and speaking than ever before. Our work received wholehearted support from Lenin, and Trotsky, although he was overburdened with military tasks, unfailingly and gladly appeared at our conferences. Energetic, gifted women, two of whom are no longer alive, sacrificially devoted all their energies to the work of the coordinating office. At the 8th congress of soviet women as a member of the soviet executive now there were already several women on this body i proposed a motion that the soviets in all areas contribute to the creation of a consciousness of the struggle for equal rights for women and accordingly to involve them in the state and communal work i managed to push the motion through and to get it accepted but not without resistance It was a great and enduring victory. A heated debate flared up when I published my thesis on the new morality. For our Soviet marriage law, separated from the church to be sure, is essentially not more progressive than the same laws that after all exist in other progressive democratic countries. Marriage, civil marriage, and although the illegitimate child was placed on a legal par with the legitimate child, In practice, a great deal of hypocrisy and injustice still exists in this area. When one speaks of the immorality, which the Bolsheviks purportedly propagated, it suffices to submit our marriage laws to a close scrutiny to note that in the divorce question, we are on par with North America, whereas in the question of the illegitimate child, we have not yet even progressed as far as the Norwegians. The most radical wing of the party was formed around this question. My theses, my sexual and moral views, were bitterly fought by many party comrades of both sexes, as were still other differences of opinion in the party regarding political guiding principles. Personal and family cares were added thereto, and thus months in 1922 went by without fruitful work. Then, in the autumn of 1922, came my official appointment to the legation of the Russian-Soviet representation in Norway. I really believed that this appointment would be purely formal, and that therefore in Norway I would find time to devote myself to my literary activity. Things turned out quite differently. With the day of my entry into office in Norway, I also entered upon a wholly new course of work in my life which drew upon all my energies to the highest degree. During my diplomatic activity, therefore, I only wrote one article, The Winged Eros, which caused an extraordinarily great flutter. Added to this were three short novels, Paths of Love, which have been published by the Malik Verlag in Berlin, my book, The New Morality and the Working Class, and a socioeconomic study, The Condition of Women in the Evolution of Political Economy, were written when I was still in Russia. So here, her views, obviously, that she's talking about, about the new morality, are the speeches and the talks and articles she wrote that eventually become Make Way for Winged Eros, which I have read on this podcast previously in over several episodes. And I really encourage you, if you haven't listened to those episodes, to go back and listen to Tai talk about her views on socialist love. She has a kind of Marxist theory of love, which I think is pretty unique and really interesting to think about, especially these days. And it got her in a lot of trouble. I think that's the other thing that's really key here, is that the Bolsheviks, as I've said on this podcast before, were pretty radical, obviously, when it came to political economy. But they weren't really very radical when it came to thinking about women's rights and thinking about sexuality and thinking about reforming or reshaping the family in any way. They end up being kind of quite bourgeois and they reinscribe patriarchy and that just becomes a reality in 1936 when Stalin reverses the family code. And, you know, everything goes back to kind of a traditional, more patriarchal nuclear family. But the seeds of that resistance to colonize ideas are already there in the early 1920s, as she just said. These articles caused a great, quote-unquote, flutter. So this is the final section of the autobiography, and it's called The Years of Diplomatic Service. And, of course, she's writing this still in the 20s, so she would go on for many, many decades to continue as a Soviet ambassador, But these are just reflections on her first few years in Norway, the years of diplomatic service. I took up my duties in Norway in October of 1922, and as early as 1923, the head of the legation went on holiday so that I had officially to conduct the affairs of the Soviet Republic for him. Soon thereafter, however, I was appointed as the representative of my country in his stead. Naturally, this appointment created a great sensation since, after all, it was the first time in history that a woman was officially active as an ambassador. The conservative press and especially the Russian white press were outraged and tried to make a real monster of immorality and a bloody bogey out of me. Now, especially a profusion of articles were written about my horrid views in relation to marriage and love. Nevertheless, I must stress here that it was only the conservative press that gave me such an unfriendly reception in my new position. In all the social relations which I had during these three years of my work in Norway, I never once experienced the least trace of aversion or mistrust against women's capabilities. To be sure, the healthy democratic spirit of the Norwegian people greatly contributed to this. Thus the fact is to be confirmed that my work as an official Russian representative in Norway was never and in no ways made difficult for the reason that I belonged to the weaker sex. In connection with my position as ambassadress, I also had to assume the duties of a trade plenipotentiary of the Russian government trade representation in Norway. Naturally, both tasks in their special way were new to me. Nevertheless, I set myself the task of effecting the de jure recognition of Soviet Russia and of re-establishing normal trade relations between the two countries which had been broken by the war and by the revolution. The work began with great zeal and the most high hopes. A splendid summer and an eventful winter marked the year of 1923. The newly resumed trade relations were in full swing. Russian corn and Norwegian herring and fish Russian wood products and Norwegian paper and cellulose. On February 15, 1924, Norway, in fact, recognized the USSR de Jure. I was appointed charge d'affaires and officially introduced into the diplomatic corps. Now, negotiations for a trade treaty between the two countries began. My life was as crammed with strenuous work and highly interesting experiences alike. I had also to settle grave questions connected with the further development of the trade and shipping. After several months, in August of 1924, I was appointed Minister Plenipotentiary and handed over my warrant to the King of Norway with the usual ceremonial. This, of course, gave the conservative press of all countries another occasion to spew their invectives upon me. After all, never before in all history had a woman been accepted as ambassador with a customary pomp and ceremony. The trade agreement was concluded in Moscow at the end of 1925, and in February I countersigned the ratified treaty in Oslo with the president of the Norwegian cabinet. The signing marked the successful accomplishment of my whole mission in Norway— I could hasten towards new goals, and for this reason, I left my post in Norway. I have attained something in this world. It was not my personal qualities that originally brought this about. Rather, my achievements are only a symbol of the fact that woman, after all, is already on the march to a general recognition. It is the drawing of millions of women into productive work, which was swiftly affected during the war and which thrust into the realm of possibility the fact that a woman could be advanced to the highest political and diplomatic positions. Nevertheless, it is obvious that only a country of the future, such as the Soviet Union, can dare confront woman without any prejudice, to appraise her only from the standpoint of her skills and talents, and accordingly to entrust her with responsible tasks. Only the fresh revolutionary storms were strong enough to sweep away hoary prejudices against women, and only the productive working people is able to effect the complete equalization and liberation of women by building a new society. As I now end this autobiography, I stand on the threshold of new missions and life is making new demands upon me. No matter what further tasks I shall be carrying out, it is perfectly clear to me that the complete liberation of the working woman and the creation of the foundation of a new sexual morality will always remain the highest aim of my activity and of my life. In July of 1926, signed Alexandra Kollontai. I am almost at the end of my allotted time for this episode, so I'm going to hold off on my final reflective thoughts on the autobiography of a sexually emancipated communist woman until the next episode. We've now read the entire thing. And it's very interesting, obviously, we know at this point Kohentai is about to go off to Mexico to be ambassador to Mexico. Eventually she ends up in Sweden. She has a very long diplomatic career. She is twice nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for her work in brokering the peace between Finland and the Soviet Union. And there's just so much more left to her life. And this is a moment when she sort of pauses to reflect on these early years. But I'll hold off on my discussion until next time. So thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, like, tell your friends, and keep up the good fight.